It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Lena Horn episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm David Levy, and here with me today are... Michal Richardson. Adam Grossworth. And Christy Bauer. We are here this week to talk about the Lena Horne episode of The Muppet Show. This is Season 1, Episode 11. Unlike last week, this was actually the 11th episode made in mid-July 1976, so uh, right around the bicentennial. And it aired on November 1st, 1976 in New York City. This is not really relevant in any way to anything that happens in this episode, but that was the night before the presidential election between Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. So a notable date in U.S. history. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Lena Horne was a singer and actor and dancer and activist. She's really actually a really fascinating individual. I knew her as a a singer actress, but didn't know a lot about her history. And she comes from a really fascinating family. Her parents were part of the burgeoning black upper middle class at the turn of the last century, uh, in part because her father was a very successful gambler. And uh, apparently his fortune may have come from betting on that fixed Black Sox World Series game. Her mother was a successful touring actress and the daughter of inventor and abolitionist Samuel R. Scrotton. Her paternal grandmother was Cora Calhoun, uh, who ended up raising her because her parents uh, were basically too busy to have children. And uh, Cora was a suffragette, and she was one of the founders of the National Association of Colored Women and a very early member of the NAACP. Family also fascinating in the other direction. Uh, Her granddaughter is actor-screenwriter Jenny Lummett, and Jake Cannavale is her great-grandson, which I was very surprised to learn. She got her start as a dancer at the Cotton Club, which was a very famous Harlem nightclub supper club when she was 16. After that, she toured with band leader Noble Sissel's band. She got on the radio. She made a couple of recordings, made a couple of B-movies. And by 1944, she was signed by MGM. However, they didn't really know what to do with a black movie star. And so they would basically create cameo roles for her where she would show up in a movie, sing one song, and then disappear so that it was easy to cut her when white exhibitors in the South wanted to show a film to a white audience and not have a black performer in it, which, uh, yeah. And as you can imagine, like she didn't like that either. And eventually she ended up leaving MGM because of that. However, she did make one really notable film for 20th century Fox on loan from MGM. And that's 1943 stormy weather, which we've talked about on this podcast before. Um, so let me just say again, it's a masterpiece. You should watch it. Disney, who now owns it after they bought Fox, should put it on Disney+. Plus. Uh, it's a great film. Go see it. Like her grandparents before her, she was very politically engaged and very involved in civil rights activism, starting in World War II and all the way up through the rest of her life, really. Uh, in World War II, she went on a USO tour, and the Army wanted her to play segregated shows, and she refused. So she organized her own shows for black soldiers and white German POWs. And even then, the Army wanted to put the German POWs in the front of the house and put the black soldiers behind them because racism. And she said, absolutely not. And she basically took her act into the middle of the theater so that all the German POWs had to turn around. Um, Eventually she quit the USO and was like, fuck you all. I'm organizing my own tour of military camps so that I can do this on my own terms. Uh, That's the kind of badass she was. And she continued to be for the rest of her life. 
I want to see a movie about that. That's amazing. <laughs> right? And and there have been a couple times when uh, there were almost movies about her life made. Most notably, uh, about 15 years ago, there was one that was supposed to happen starring Janet Jackson. And then when the Super Bowl scandal happened, Lena Horne asked her to step back from the role thinking that you know it would be impossible to get it made with her and then it didn't get made anyway and that just sucks hopefully we will eventually get a lena horn biopic hopefully a good one in the 50s she transitioned mostly to being a concert and recording artist her 1957 live album lena horn at the waldorf astoria no relation to the muppets became uh, the biggest selling record by a female artist in the history of the rca victor label at that time, she was the first African-American woman to be nominated for the Best Actress in a Musical Tony Award for her part in the musical Jamaica. As the 60s progressed, she became very involved in that era of civil rights activism. She was at a lot of the very famous marches and rallies, but she was also working behind the scenes using her connections to try to lobby for civil rights advances, including meeting with JFK two days before he was assassinated. During that era, she also became uh, an increasing presence on TV and variety shows and on sitcoms, uh, all the way up through she had a very famous guest star appearance on The Cosby Show and on A Different World, and of course on Sesame Street and The Muppet Show. In 1980, she was part of a gala performance at the Met that was supposed to be her, Pavarotti, and Gene Kelly. And Pavarotti ended up not being able to be there, but the audience loved Lena Horn so much that pretty much no one asked for their money back, which was a big deal. James Niederlander, the big Broadway producer, was in the audience and immediately went backstage to meet Lena after that and offered her a gig in the newly christened Nederlander Theater on Broadway. And she took her show there for what was supposed to be a one-month run. And it ended up being extended for a full year. And Lena Horne, Lady and Her Music was really the crowning achievement of her career. It won a Tony Award. It won two Grammy Awards. She did it on television. It got a home video release. She did a national tour. She did an international tour. And it set a record which still stands for the longest-running solo performance in Broadway history. After that, she basically wound down her career, uh, went to semi-retirement. She won a Grammy for Lifetime Achievement in 1989, and she died in 2010. Uh, a couple years ago, in 2018, the U.S. Postal Service did put her on a postage stamp, the 41st issue in the Black Heritage Stamp Series. And that's Lena Horne. According to the... Um Trivia on the DVD, Lena Horne's appearance in The Muppet Show was a real turning point for the show in booking guest stars. She was actually advised not to do the show. It doesn't say by who, but, you know, I guess her agent or whoever, because people thought it was going to flop. But she had done Sesame Street already and really enjoyed working with The Muppets and just really wanted to do it. And um, because of her stature, they were then able to book some higher caliber folks. So that's kind of fun. Why don't you get me Christy, what did you think of this episode? I enjoyed this episode a great deal. I thought the joke hit rate was really high. I mean, even on the second and third watches, I laughed again at the same goofy ass jokes. <laughs> um, and Lena Horne is such a like majestic presence. She really brings kind of a gravitas to a lot of really otherwise ridiculous situations and has one of those all time most incredible voices. So uh, yeah, I, I thought it, it was a treat. I have a question. Is she the oldest guest star that we've had at this point? She was roughly 60, maybe 59 when she did this. Uh, how old was Charles Aznavour? I'm looking what? it up. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's older than him. So yeah. yes, I would say she is. Yeah, I agree with that completely, Christy. And, but she, 
she brings gravitas and also she's having a lot of fun, which is a really great combo for the Muppet show. I made a gif of her laughing at one point just because it, it, it was so delightful. Like she brings, she brings a lot of joy as well. Um, especially after Harvey Corman, which, which I, I enjoyed and I enjoy him, but I also sort of felt like maybe he didn't really want to be there and wasn't quite sure what he'd signed up for. She knew exactly what she signed up for. And she's such a warm presence. It was a, it was a great fit. I thought, Michal, how about you? Yeah, I did not expect to love this episode as much as I did, because I remember seeing it as a kid and thinking that this was kind of a slower episode, which it, as much as it was definitely more of a, a mellow half hour, it's gorgeous. The The Muppets have this kind of reverence towards Lena Horne, and now that I've watched it again as an adult, you know what? It's for a damn good reason. She's incredible. <laughs> My notes are just... Endless praise for her presence on screen. I was writing down things like, what a stunning woman. What an electric performer. You can't take your eyes off of her, even when there are Muppets on the screen, which, you know, I'm used to noticing the puppeteering more than the guest star. But you cannot take your eyes off of her face. She just has this presence. Even when she's not singing and just hanging out with the Muppets, she's really present with them. And she's so tickled by them. It's so compelling and it's wonderful. Side note, I don't know what's going on with all of her outfits in this episode. There is something that like it in this era, none of those look like clothes that people wear, but we can talk more about that later. Oh yeah, we will. Uh, and I, I think both things can be true, right? Cause I, I do like, I didn't love this episode necessarily, but I loved her. I don't know. Well, I mean, we'll talk about it. David, what about you? Stop, stop me from babbling. No, I think Adam, you and I are probably on the same page. I, I I like this episode. It's probably not one of my all-time favorites, but it was a lot of fun. I, I find that often I come away feeling like, oh, we didn't really get a whole lot of that guest star. And I felt like we got exactly the right amount of her. She gets three songs, which is one more than we usually get from a guest star, which makes sense. She's a singer. But I think that helped. And I also love that one of them was moved into the backstage story and we'll talk about that when we get there. But I think that also changes the, the relative weight of the backstage to onstage story in a way that feels more like the Muppet show I remember. And because of that, I think it gets this episode a little bit of kind of extra bonus points. Yeah. It does feel like a turning point. Yeah. And we are uh, right smack in the the middle, right? We're halfway through in the production order. So that, that sort of makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So lots of music to talk about this week, beginning with one of my all-time favorites. Right now, we're going to start off the show with an act that was discovered by George, our janitor. And here it is, right from the cleaning room into your living room, the Rag Mops! So this is Rag Mop, <laughs> which is a song that I was stunned to find out was not written for this express purpose. 
because I mean, what other purpose would exist for this other than to uh, make a group of mops sing and dance? But no, it is a song from uh, the late 40s, early 50s. It was written by Johnny Lee Wills and Deacon Anderson. It was first recorded in 1949. It was copyrighted in 1950. Um, And it was made most famous by the Ames Brothers, which was a a group that were really brothers, though weirdly their name wasn't actually Ames. But they also uh, (laughs) included uh, the actor Ed Ames, who later uh, was one of the stars of the TV show Daniel Boone. And we have a clip of them. M. I say M O M O P M O P P Mop M O P P Mop 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 So uh, this version of Ragmop was number one for one week in 1950. And according to Wikipedia, it was the last single release to hit number one on the popular Billboard charts that was released only on 78 RPM speed at the time of its popularity. After that point, uh, every song for the foreseeable future into the digital era was released on uh, 45 RPM records. Interestingly, I found there's an episode of MASH where, uh, and it happens right after uh, New Year's Eve going into 1950. So it's very, very precisely historically accurate <laughs> where they order a radio from the Sears catalog and apparently listen to this song a lot and drive Major Winchester out of his mind. It's so weird to me that that would be, a, while it's historically accurate, that it would be a reference in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. That people would understand. But I guess that's like that's about the distance from now to, I don't know, Hungry Like the Wolf. So I guess it makes sense <laughs> in a weird way, but that makes me feel very old. Yeah. I just, I love this. It's to me like the quintessential perfect Muppet Show standalone musical segment. It's like the perfect song. It's the perfect arrangement. It's the perfect performances. It's it's quick. It doesn't overstay its welcome. I just loved it. According to the DVD, um, the lead vocal on this is by Peter Friedman, uh, who was a sometimes Muppet performer, uh, much better known, I think, to most of us as a Broadway and television performer, most known to me as Tata in the original company of Ragtime. Um, Tata, you have to say it in Leah Michelle's accent. Tata. And uh, he he will appear again in the Sandy Duncan episode, so you'll hear us say, say this again because we recorded out of order, blah, blah, blah. There's a really great behind-the-scenes video of this that we'll put in the show notes in which Jim Henson is performing the lead mop, but it's clearly not his voice. And I was trying to spot Peter Friedman in there, and I, I couldn't, but um, he, he might be, and I just he would also be much younger than I ever have seen him, so I don't know. But I love that Peter Friedman was a Muppet guy. And I love anytime there is a homogenous chorus of Muppet things like penguins or mops or pigs that includes them joyfully throwing themselves into the air at the end of the number. I'm into it. So it's hard for me to watch any kind of Muppet mop reference without thinking back to the Muppet Valentine show where George recognizes that he loves his mop, which evolves into a whole musical extravaganza about how much he loves his mop. And apparently the Muppet Show writers had the same idea because they do bring George on at the end. 
Well, and George found the nut, found the the act. Uh, Kermit said in the intro too. Oh, you're right. But uh, but but we have the clip from the end. Yeah, now that's my kind of act. Oh yeah. Which does make me wonder if George has a casting coach. This whole thing is just porn to George. <laughs> he loves his one mop. How many mops do you think he loves? Uh, he, maybe he loves all mops. We can only speculate. I don't know his business. Yeah, it's true. Oh, I love it. I love it so much. I also love how, on a practical level, this is a very, very low-budget thing. And that it's buoyed entirely by performance and joy and enthusiasm. Yeah, because they're just bouncing the mops up and down, right? The mops. Yeah, only one have... of them has a has a mouth. Yeah. yeah, it's delightful. It is. Yeah, unlike the creepy mouthless dancers, these these are fine. They're mops. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it. So our our next song is our f- first performance from Lena Horne. Like the singing bird or the croaking toad, I got a name. I got a name And I carry it with me Like my daddy did But I'm living a dream That he kept in Moving me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Man, what a voice. (laughs) Uh, So this is I I Got a Name, which was a number 10 posthumous hit for Jim Croce in 1973. It was released the day after his death in a plane crash. And I was surprised to learn that Jim Croce didn't write it. For some reason, I thought he did. But no, it was written by Norman Gimbel and Charles Fox, who as a team also wrote Killing Me Softly with his song and Barry Manilow is ready to take a chance again. I learned a lot of really interesting, wacky facts about the two of them individually. Norman Gimbel, the lyricist, also was largely famous for writing the English lyrics for several uh, famous songs originally written in Portuguese and French, including The Girl from Ipanema, Sway, Summer Samba, How Insensitive. And uh, he won the 1979 Best Song Oscar with David Shire for a song called It Goes Like It Goes from Norma Ray, which beat the Rainbow Connection. Nope. <laughs> Didn't happen. Not canon. Don't believe it. A, a, a win that has not aged well. Um, <laughs> that does not sound culturally uplifting. <laughs> Meanwhile, Charles Fox, the composer, wrote the music for the Love Boat theme. Paul Williams only wrote the lyrics. We had, had mentioned him as being connected to the Love Boat theme, but it's just the lyrics. And he also, in the late 60s and early 70s, worked for a company called Bob Israel's Score Productions, and through them wrote uncredited several iconic game show themes, including the theme to match game to tell the truth in the 1970s iteration of what's my line. Uh, And if you had told me a few days ago before I had looked up all of this, that the same person wrote the music of, I got a name killing me softly with his song and the match game theme, I would have laughed (laughs) in your face. But no, that's the monoculture for you. Lena Horne recorded this song a couple times. It was 
1975 album Lena and Michelle with Michelle Legrand. And that's the same album that had the only cover that I could find of Paul Williams' sad song from a couple weeks ago, which I thought was like a neat connection. Um, it's also the second number in her, The Lady in the Music Show, which I actually think is a better rendition than the one that we get here. Like uh, of all of her performances on the show, this was the one that I found the least compelling. It's just like a little snoozy for my taste. And when she does it in her concert, it's like, it's like a barn burner. So we'll have a, a link to the YouTube of that in the show notes. And I, if you like it here, you'll love it there. So I recommend checking it out. Yeah. The tempo here drags in such a way that like y- you can sort of like, uh, do your taxes between verses like <laughs> like it, it, it it's one that, that needs a little bit more drive than they give it but on the other hand it also allows you to just luxuriate in lena horn's voice so you can't complain too much it's also a really lovely set and i don't understand the set she's at a like a, a country train station like not even station right like a, a, a teeny tiny platform where where one car of a train will stop and it's it's all just beautifully painted it's not you know they're not trying to really fool you um but there's a there's a force force protective train tracks which which muppy walks downstage at the beginning of the of the number when he's a real dog and this beautiful like sunset backdrop there's a a steamer trunk which is actually not real it's it's a box that they've they've done this trompe scenic painting on it's all very lovely and we were talking was it last week or the week before about you know robin being on the staircase in the void of nowhere. And this is like the complete opposite of that, but still very theatrical, like very, very painted in a really lovely way. Yeah. I've been trying to come up with a term for this particular Muppet show trope uh, because it's sort of, I, I keep coming back to like, maybe like sit and sing. Like it's there, there's like, a, it's a very specific thing that we keep seeing over and over of the guest star singing with or singing to a Muppet or a group of Muppets in a pastoral setting of some sort. It's lovely. It's really lovely. Yeah. I remain fascinated by the assortment of Muppets who, <laughs> who they choose for these numbers, which sometimes make perfect sense to me and sometimes do not. I mean, it still makes sense. It's the ones they have on hand, aside from Droop, who, you know, right. they, they bring in everybody somehow except for Droop. But they just don't have that big of an ensemble yet. So this is just who's around, I think. I guess. I just, they have so many frackles and pigs and, and whatnot that to to use, I mean, this is so pedantic and I'm an asshole, but like to, to use to use Hilda and and George in particular, who are characters within the show with backstage jobs, I find very odd. And then the guru is there too. And the guru doesn't really exist in the world of the Muppet show, except to be on the, on the panel sketches. So it matters less, but like, they're so specific as opposed to like Fozzie or Kermit or whoever, where it would make sense for them to be on stage. I just find that odd. And it's also so very clearly not their voices, which is good, right? I'm glad that they backed Lena Horn up with real singers. <laughs> um, but it's also sort of distracting that they don't match the characters we're looking at. I find the motley assortment of Muppets and situations like this really moving though. Because it recontextualizes somebody like a Hilda or a George who you typically only see in one mode. So that's that's true. I, I guess I I would feel the same way though if it were Piggy or Wanda or I don't know. It it does feel true to me in the in the sense that like if the Muppet Show is more like the kind of 
cabaret shows we were seeing in New York right before the pandemic and less like the vaudeville shows of the 40s, then it absolutely feels true that you would just grab whichever five of your friends could make it to the one rehearsal and stick them on stage, whether they are for the rest of the show, your stage manager, your janitor, the person who passes out drink tickets. Like if they were available and could sing the harmony, they are on stage for that number. I have True. definitely done that. <laughs> True. And if we go too far down this road, then I'm going to start wondering what Mildred's job is. And I don't know. She's the receptionist. <laughs> and she well, has a lot of degrees. Those right. are the things we know. Right. So, you know, we shouldn't actually examine this too hard and I should stop. <laughs> Uh, I will grant you that the the arrangement that she sings in The Lady and Her Music is is more of a driving and powerful arrangement, but given how beautifully Lena Horne's voice resonates in uh, this version of it and everything that she sings in the show, it's hard to believe the story that she tells that uh, early in her career she needed, needed to be taught to carry a tune when her voice is just so expressive and powerful. She's She's a talented lady. She sure is. Sorry, I just got distracted thinking about how uh, Mildred's job is to be undersexed and overqualified. (laughs) (laughs) You know, good for her for making a profession out of it. I mean, relatable. Uh, (laughs) Everybody's got a gimmick and that's hers. Do you want to talk about her clothes, Nicole? I don't even know what to say about this thing that she's wearing. It's like, if I say that it's a denim jacket, that's going to give the wrong impression because it's not... A, I, what what would you call this garment? Sleeves on sleeves on sleeves. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, there are buttons. Yeah. Like yeah. I mm. sort of coveralls-y, sort of. Yeah, it's like she's a mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> there, there will be a gif in the show notes. Please take a look if you have not watched the episode, or if you have watched the episode, and let us know in the comments what you think. Muppeturgy.com slash it is dash horn. <laughs> it is a little refreshing that after episodes where take Charles Aznavour, where every single scene that he was in was like a more fabulous, ridiculous sequined outfit than the next here. She's wearing like normal people clothes. Like you might wear to clean your toilet. I don't know. Like she doesn't need to be glammed up because she brings like such an aura of showbiz and glamor with her that I, I noticed some of her other outfits. This was not one that I even clocked as being weird. It just seemed like it, it fit this like country train station setting and like, go for it. Be comfortable. Yeah. And the sort of like working class drive of the song too. Now who knows what job she ostensibly does, but <laughs> you know, she looks like she does a job. She, ha- she has a name and she has a job. And she has clothes <laughs> of some sort. I am generally fond of her outfits in this episode and have been of most of our humans clothes so far until we'll, we'll get, there's one that I didn't understand. But we're oh, I think I know which one you, yeah, we'll I, see I if we get pick the same one. Yeah. <laughs> so we have a, what I think is a fairly unusual UK spot. <laughs> No, we are not on the one, two, three platform in Times Square at rush hour. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, 
this is uh, Zoot and Ralph playing the theme from Love Story, and there's no joke to it. They're just playing it. Well, Ralph I mean, cries at the end. There's yeah, a little tiny joke at the end. Right. Yeah. I think the joke is like how schmaltzy it is. Yeah. I just really fucking hate this song. Always have. <laughs> it was such a staple of easy listening radio when I was little, and that was off and on in the car. And I just, ugh. Yeah, I think the ubiquity of the song is the joke, really. Yeah. So the the quick co- background context of the song is, yeah, so it's a theme from a movie called Love Story, which was a huge hit in 1970. This tragic, romantic, weepy starring Ryan O'Neill and Ali McGraw. It's the movie where love means never having to say you're sorry comes from. Ooh. And <laughs> Yeah, that's the opposite of true. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a bad philosophy. It was written by Francis Lai, who was a French composer, primarily of film scores, who won an Oscar for the score of Love Story. And uh, it w- was so popular that a version with lyrics uh, called Where Do I Begin was a hit for Andy Williams. It was, it was number one on the easy listening chart and uh, number nine on the uh, Hot 100 chart. And around the same time, there were various other versions that charted for Henry Mancini, Tony Bennett, uh, and a uh, future Muppet Show guest star Roy Clark had a country version. Yeah, it, it was everywhere. And it will appear again in Muppet form. Oh, boy. <laughs> we have a clip of the original, just for David. Um, mm-hmm. uh, brace yourselves for drama. If you're listening to this on headphones or earpods, you might want to turn your, your drama volume down. Sort of love it. Where do I begin to tell the story of how great a love can be? The sweet love story that is older than the sea. Hey, they said the name. The I want to see a competitive ballroom routine to that. I'm yeah, sitting here chat chatting to it. Skating? Yeah, I'm it sure that exists. That. Just hop oh. onto YouTube. Yeah. So our next song happens backstage. Sometimes it takes a long time for an artist to be appreciated. But le- as long as one person appreciates you, you just got to keep on trying. And as for me, I, I think you're fantastic. You're- I don't know what to say. Well, listen. In this world of ordinary people, extraordinary people, I'm glad there is you. In this world of overrated pleasures and underrated treasures, I'm glad there is you. I'll live to love. I love to live with you beside me. This role so new, I'll model through with you to guide me. Aw, <laughs> it's yeah. so sweet. So, so yeah. So, uh, after yet another failed and unappreciated performance, Gonzo is comforted by the great and wise Lena Horn. 
with a song called I'm Glad There Is You, uh, which was written in 1941 by the famous band leader Jimmy Dorsey and composer named Paul Madeira or Paul Mertz. I, I, I found him credited alternately as Paul Madeira, Paul Mertz, and Paul Madeira Mertz. So take from that what you will. And it's a, a standard has been recorded by many, many people. Ella Fitzgerald, Sinatra, Lena Horne herself, and a version of hers would later appear in an episode of The Cosby Show. So this isn't the first time that we hear Gonzo sing, but I think it's the first time we hear him sing sincerely or sing a ballad. And it really struck me because while he doesn't have a great singing voice and it will get better over time, it is so sincere and so emotive that it was really, really effective. And of course, it's also, it's the first time that we have a song as part of the backstage business. And that to me was really interesting. And as I said earlier, I think this starts to like tip the scale in terms of the balance between the onstage business and the backstage business to feel a little more even and a little more like the Muppet show that I remember. And so I very much appreciated that. This is a really good week for um, DVD trivia, though it's part of it is wrong. Uh, they said that this is the first use of the dressing room set with a guest star, which is not true. We saw it in Charles Aznavour, but this is obviously more extensive than that. But they also said that um, Gonzo's sad eyes were a problem. Uh, and at the end of season one, they they will add eyelid movement so that he can have a wider range of expression, which I thought was really interesting because um, we also have learned that they they actually took movement away from Fozzie because he didn't need it and it made the puppet too heavy. But uh, Gonzo's case, he he needs to be able to move his face more. This number starts with uh, Gonzo having an act on stage that flops, and right through the whole thing, he looks sad before anything has even happened, <laughs> and that's that's where that that pop up happens on the DVD. There's also uh, like an, some interesting camera angles, which I, I first noticed here. We see Kermit introduces Gonzo on stage, and there's a shot of Kermit from the side and Gonzo waiting in the wings, which I don't think we've seen before. And there's a couple different angles in the talk spot and a couple shots like that of, of characters in the wings. There's another one from the other side where we see into the backstage set. Um, so like they're really they're starting to do some interesting stuff. Yeah, I gasped at that shot of uh, Gonzo in the wings during Kermit's introduction. I thought that was just... Well, it was surprising. It, yeah, it was, like they're playing with the focus too. It's not yeah. just the angle. It's really neat. There will be a gift in the show notes. I find it interesting that they were already sort of aware that they needed to do more things to the Gonzo puppet because the season one Gonzo puppet makes me nervous. Yeah, <laughs> like like his nose looks like it's like paper mache, like it could fall off at any time. I don't know if they knew yet, or if this is just where the people who made the DVD chose to tell us about it. <laughs> But it's something that Dave Gold said was a problem, and and they they'll figure it out by the end of the season. So I I love that in this scene, Lena Horne's outfit seems to be color coordinated to Gonzo's body. It, she's wearing this, I think it's a muumu. I don't know because we don't because she's sitting down. We don't see the bottom half of her. It could just be a shirt. But it's I don't even know how to describe this pattern. It's one of those like very seventies pattern that's sort of halfway between paisley and tie dye, and it's like. Pinks and purples and blues and silk. greens. Yeah. And but then it's when like, she hugs Gonzo, he just camouflages into her. Just right. Cause it's like the green from his eyelids and the blue from his nose and the purple mm-hmm. from his tuxedo. Like it's all like very well matched. I also noticed this is, you know, partly high def and partly because I'm making gifts. Like Gonzo's very soft in a way. Like I also I have a new dog and I was like, oh, I want to pet Gonzo. <laughs> As does Lena Horn. She's like mm-hmm. very handsy with the Muppets, especially with him. Yeah. But it's something I never really noticed before. He's a he's a different fabric than a lot of the Muppets. Not flocked like Kermit and not shag fur like a monster, but right. some other fuzzy fur type thing that must right. be. And fun not to teddy cuddle. bear fur like Fozzie. Mm-hmm. Right. 
This is a strange road to go down, but I'm glad we did. <laughs> Next on Muppet Dermatology. <laughs> <laughs> Muppetermy. That's a different podcast. You know, Muppetermy is yeah. when you stuff them up and yeah. mount it. <laughs> <laughs> it it never works well, as you can see from all the Muppet poser photos that they use on Disney Plus. And then our last song is, by Muppet standards, iconic. You know, there's a children's TV show that I really enjoy. Maybe you've heard of Sesame Street. <laughs> anyway, here's one of my favorite songs from that show. Sing, sing a song, sing out loud, sing out strong. Sing of good things, not bad. Sing of happy, not sad. So yeah, this is Sing, uh, which was written by Joe Raposo, uh, Frank Sinatra's favorite composer of the 70s in uh, 1971 for Sesame Street. And it has appeared in dozens of Muppet iterations. You should look it up on Muppet Wiki. They're very thorough. But it was also a mainstream hit. The Carpenters had a hit with it in 1973. It went all the way to number three. And uh, there have been many, 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 many versions. And uh, David's actually going to make a Spotify playlist of them. So we will have that in our show notes. Friends, I went down such a (laughs) sing rabbit hole. And I'll tell you why. Because for me, the Carpenter version is the one that lives in my head primarily as like the urtext of this song, even though it's not the original version. And in their version, when they get to the la-la-di-da part, they sing... In this version, we hear Lena Horne sing. Which you also hear in the introduction in the clip that we just played. And I always thought of that as like a weird alternate option up that I only knew from Barbara Streisand's recording from 1972 at her live concert at the Forum album, her best live album, if you ask me. And it turns out that uh, I was wrong, that it was not a Barbara Streisand creation. It's actually part of the original harmony for the song. And having listened to, I don't know, a dozen different recordings from different Sesame Street performances from different eras, they go back and forth between which one is the melody and which one is the harmony. And there doesn't necessarily seem to be a final answer. And that drove me nuts. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, it's very interesting to me that this song has has like a flexible melody for a song that is so famous and so well known that that there are two different ways to sing that line. Just like what what world is this? What universe do we live in? I don't know. Is it is this a multiverse thing? Is it the Berenstein Bears and the Berenstein Bears? I don't know. <laughs> it's in the text uh, of the song. Don't worry if it's not good enough. Don't worry which octave you're in. Right. Don't worry whether you sing melody or harmony. It's all good. Just sing a song, dude. Anyway, to me, it was also very interesting that in this particular 
performance with Lena Horne and the Muppets, they set it in a key that is probably not the key that Lena Horne would have chosen if she was singing it solo. So she ends up taking the harmony for a, a good chunk of the song while Kermit or other Muppets sing the melody over her, uh, which is an interesting choice and I think speaks to her humility as an artist and her willingness to be like part of the ensemble with the Muppets and the Muppet performers, which just, I don't know, I found that particularly sweet and moving as well. I also feel like this is a counter argument to uh, Paul Williams's sad song from <laughs> a few episodes ago because of the, you know, sing of happy, not sad. Like it, <laughs> it almost seems like they're at war a little bit. <laughs> and yet Lena Horne also recorded sad songs. So, you know, mm. she contains multitudes. It feels like such a seventies variety show moment for her to be like, this little show, maybe you've heard of it. Yeah. Yeah, I love like, that oh. moment. Oh, There's yeah. That murmur of the Muppets being like, oh, right. yeah, I think I know a guy who knows a guy who works on that show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this Kermit is also- a little smirk in his face like, oh, yeah. I'm that guy. That's, that's my side gig. <laughs> um, and this is the dress that baffled me utterly. Like, she escaped from a Ren fair. I don't. Is it a dress? Is it a blouse? We can't see the bottom it's of it. It's true. It read it read like the top like a like a bodicey dress to me, but it, you're right that I'm I'm making an assumption. Um, oh, this is not the one that I picked. Oh, which well, one was we still we still will get there. Oh, more to come. Got it. There's one really cute moment when they're they're doing that la da 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 chorus where she's she's so in it that she's and she's got one arm around Kermit and one arm around Fozzie and she's just alternating making eye contact with each of them and you can see that like Fozzie looks up at the last possible second at the end of that chorus and sees that she's been trying to look at him and he like gives her a split second of eye contact before he looks back into the camera because he realizes he's been late it's just it's really cute yeah poor Fozzie I really enjoyed this episode you guys yeah (laughs) so sweet Ready! Three, two, one, fire! It is once again time for a shot out of a cannon, and I believe that David has a note about a Muppet Show feature that will become canonical, but which we are only seeing the seeds of in this episode. So when we started making this podcast and we started clipping the various clips that we were going to use as our evergreen sound effects, we got really frustrated because we could not find like the quintessential Kermit yay clip. That was actually Jim Henson. The, the one that other podcasts use seems to be Steve Whitmire. No judgment, little judgment. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) it's good for some podcasts. We have a higher standard here at Muppeturgy and uh, we're proud of our standards anyway. uh, So listening to the theme song this week, I was really taken with, both times that Kermit introduced Lena Horne, because it sounds like we're starting to hear Jim Henson taking the first steps down the road to what will eventually be the trademark yay. So first, uh, when he pops out of the O in the Muppet Show sign at the very beginning, here's what it sounds like. It's the Muppet Show with our special guest, Dormus Lena Horne. So we get a little woo, which I, I love. love that. And, you know, who am I to criticize Jim Henson's pu- puppetry? But the face he makes is not a woo face. <laughs> yeah, it's like a, oh. It's very cute, but it does not woo. <laughs> and then when he introduces her in the middle of the song after the, to introduce this guest star bit, it sounds like this. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really 
really make me happy to introduce to you Miss Lena Horn. He also sounds fully insane when he's singing the. Oh my really, God. he's screaming my, and angry. My, my, my notes said, "What the fuck happened to Kermit?" I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> And then I see you have a third clip here, but I don't know what that one is, so well, I'm curious. You, you asked for it, so um, like specifically, so let's play it. Well, that's it for this week's madness. Hey, we'd like a special thanks for our special guest star, Miss Lena Horn. Ah! <laughs> hey. I just thought that'd be a fun clip to play at the end of our episode. <laughs> oh no, I, I totally heard it and thought, oh, that's a proto yay when he just yeah, it is a proto yay. Hey, you, you're hey, right. Put it in the doc. But yeah, he's a. Uh, He's a got a little a little thing there. So I'll be interested as we move forward to see how that develops. Is it are we going to get a full throated yay by the end of this season, or is that coming later? Does it ever come? Is this the kind of thing that we've all collectively imagined? And I, I, I don't know. We'll find out. So let's talk about the backstage story. Um, this is an actually kind of a cute storyline sitcom misunderstanding between Kermit and Piggy and there are a few karate chops but there's no emotional abuse or coercion or resentment so uh, first we find out that Piggy has been chopped from the show as it were this week is it true what I've heard that I'm not doing my song on the show tonight uh, that's true <gasps> why well Piggy because Lena Horn is our guest this week and uh, how can I say this there are singers and there are singers. You catch my drift? Oh, and and you don't want me to overshadow Miss Horn. Oh, of course you're right. What a considerate frog. Oh. Ignorance is truly bliss. Also, as he says that, I think that's when you see Muppy run up the stairs yeah. after the Lena Horn number, which I appreciate an appearance from live doggy Muppy. That's always cute. Kermit, uh, once again, a terrible manager to have not told his diva and possibly girlfriend directly that um, she has been cut from the show. She had to hear about it, I don't know, through gossip, on the call board. Not great. Yeah, better to have found out it before the show is already on. (laughs) Correct. Also correct. (laughs) Picky strikes me as the kind of actress who maybe didn't read her email. I mean, I know she didn't have emails in the 70s, (laughs) but sure, right. There was probably a memo, yeah. Yeah, she might not open that memo. Anyway, she turns up later again, um, thrusting herself onto Kermit's little table that he keeps there. The consideration that you've shown, Lena Horn, has only reinforced my undying love for you. Oh, kiss me quick! Uh, uh, Piggy, uh, I appreciate the fact that you find me attractive. Every frog wants to be needed, but uh, there is no room in my life for <clears throat> romance at this time. Thank you. Oh, oh, I'm crushed. Oh, oh, I'm destroyed. My life has no meaning. It, it, it's over. It's over. Piggy, uh, listen, oh, the uh, sun will never shine on this pig. Oh, death, death, where is thy sting? Um, <gasps> Uh, Piggy, aren't you just overdoing it a little bit? Uh, Maybe. And then she wanders off. That was easy. This is where I'd like to point out that Piggy is oversexed and underqualified. (laughs) (laughs) And which of them has a job in show business? Which of them gets to stay on after season one? (laughs) 
But okay, so setting aside the the comic misunderstanding and the karate chops, we have Kermit just politely rejecting Piggy, and Piggy has her dramatic moment, and then she's done and wanders away. And what if we had that every week instead of an endless cycle for many decades of them being ruthless, merciless, and cruel to each other? I mean, then there'd be no show. But yeah, right. It would be right. kinder. I, do you remember what happened on Moonlighting when they finally got married? I mean, I remember. <laughs> did they get married or did they just get together? Uh, I don't know. Way. I never watched Moonlighting. <laughs> oh, that was show, a staple in my the household. There was also a writer's strike. Anyway, not the point. Um, the, <laughs> the, um, it's an interesting. Like, there's a there's a general rule of threes in comedy and. This and the last time we had a, a significant Kermit Piggy thing, there are four of these scenes, and I would argue that there should be three of them. But I like this one a lot better. It's really charming, and adding Scooter into the mix is a great choice. I, I thought this was an interesting example of Kermit trying to do the right thing by code switching, talking to each of the, I don't know if they're employees or coworkers of his, because the org chart here is very confusing, <laughs> but speaking to each of them in the way he thinks they need to be spoken to, uh, the only problem is that he forgets that Scooter's a moron, and so that's why it backfires. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, like, you can see he's trying to give Scooter, like, a little bit of a management lesson. He's trying to give Piggy the the right kind of easy letdown and support that she needs. Uh, unfortunately, his lesson to Scooter is not a good enough lesson. You're really turning on Scooter. It has not taken you long into this podcast to really flip. <laughs> I, I don't think it's that I'm turning on Scooter. It's that I'm waiting for Scooter to grow into the Scooter that I know he can be. Mm. Mm. Sure, sure. Not with the help of mentorship from Kermit. Apparently not. There's something so charming about Scooter um, saying, though he is a moron, um, you know, <laughs> I just love being in the show business. I don't know. I found it so, so cute. This is such a, such a good writing choice. It is very cute. And I can totally believe that he would just wander on screen and say, gosh, it's great being in the show business. Isn't it, Chief? <laughs> He's just happy to be here. We've got a Muppet News Flash, which is probably the most charming of the guest star spots that we've had on the Muppet News Flash. Uh, tell us, Mrs. Bramswell, has eating only seaweed presented any problems? No, not really. Except that twice a day, I find myself going in and out with the tide. <laughs> That's not easy to do in Kentucky. Even just that one line, such panache. Eating seaweed feels such like a timely 70s reference. Right. <laughs> Even the the DVD uh, pop-ups from 2005 were like, you can eat several kinds of seaweed. It's used to make sushi. I was like, R- really? <laughs> Thanks, DVD <laughs> pop-ups. <laughs> I'm glad somebody's watching them up at Morsels. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for your um, service. I'm, I'm here for you. We've got At the Dance, uh, in which... Janice dances with Zoot, and it quickly becomes apparent that she needs to ditch Zoot immediately in favor of Floyd. Uh, The blue freckle blows his top, literally, and Mildred continues to misunderstand how child-rearing works. You know, they say the children of today are the parents of tomorrow. I always thought it took longer than that. Poor Mildred. (laughs) Will you love me forever? I don't know, baby. Ask me again in a million years. George, George, do you like circuses? Oh, I love them. Oh, then you must like wrinkling. I don't know. I'm never wrinkled. 
So I, I misheard that uh, one of the times that I watched it as surfaces. I heard that too. <laughs> I mean, I figured it out. I had to but... rewind it. I had no idea what the joke was. Yeah. It's pretty of its time. I mean, is Ringling Brothers even a thing anymore? As of recently, I don't think so. Yeah. I mean, it was around for a long time. But I mean, it's definitely like I, I went to that circus, you know, around the time that this episode aired. So Right. But we never called it Ringling. It was Ringling Brothers. It was Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I mean, that yeah. was for the sake of the joke. And they've yeah, done they're, a, they're a Kipling joke already. So they could make that work as a running gag. Maybe. They were trying to. <laughs> <laughs> um, two of the mops from Ragmop are dancing in the background of this, which delighted me to no end. Mm-hmm. Me too. While I was watching this this afternoon, and at the dance came on, and Keith looks at me and goes, is this segment in all five years? <laughs> <laughs> I assured him it was not. Somebody doesn't think explosions are funny. Hmm. So we have our talk spot. Uh, I think that we can agree that this is the first talk spot that really hits it out of the park. It was just delightful. My notes said, oh my gosh, just a nice talk spot. <laughs> Imagine that. This is what I was alluding to earlier about Lena Horn being just like so kind. I mean, I know it's written. <laughs> like I realize this is a scripted bit, um, but she's so, the character of Lena Horn on The Muppet Show is just the loveliest person. Yeah, she's incredibly sweet. And uh, this also contains three of my favorite lines this week when Fozzie is tugging on Kermit's little arm and then pops up from behind the little divider to get Kermit's attention while saying hoo-ha, hoo-ha, which I, is that a thing that people said in 1976? You guys I don't can tell think me. So. Okay. It's, it's right there with Hubba <laughs> And then he doesn't recognize Lena Horn. Uh, and I guess he doesn't remember that this is the Lena Horn episode of The Muppet Show that <laughs> they are currently performing. But the way that she then says Doris Day and cute joke are just a thing of joy and beauty forever. Let's listen to those. Oh, thank you. And I'm a big fan of you and the Muppets, Kermit. Oh, well, that makes us all very happy because we on the... We have, uh, hoo-ha. Uh, hoo-ha. Fozzie, excuse me, Lena. Fozzie, what is it? What is it? Mm-hmm. It's us and we and ours, but only you, the frog, get to talk to the guest star. What you can't see is she's wonderful. What you can't see is that when they're talking about her, she she looks almost pained, but then when she breaks and starts just giggling and clapping, it's because she's been holding it in. <laughs> and it's wonderful. And you also can't see this little double take that Kermit does when she says Doris Day. He does a little visual hubba <laughs> And like she's so she's so kind to Fozzie and then she shades Kermit at the end, which I also <laughs> love. I also love that in her accent, Kermit is Kermit. Like, it's just slight, but it's adorable. It is. And then at the end of the episode, she kind of does the same thing for Piggy that she does for Fozzie. I was listening to Piggy sing backstage. Mm-hmm. I think she ought to have our own spot on the show. Oh, uh, really? Well, maybe next time we'll let her sing a song. Oh, Kermit! Oh, you do love me! Oh, give your little porker a kiss on that chunk! Like, it's just so sweet. <laughs> Lena Horn breaks again there. Yeah. She's just so happy to be there. <laughs> yeah. I do have more to say about hoo-ha that I did not <laughs> say before. <laughs> do it. So hoo-ha actually <laughs> entered English through Yiddish. <laughs> it's a, it's huh. a, like a Yiddish exclamation. And like I know in the Alan Sherman comedy records, which I think are from the 50s, he does some bits about hoo-ha. And uh, according to dictionary.com, it entered 
English from Yiddish around like the early thirties. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know if that by the seventies, if people were still saying hoo-ha, but it is like, it's not just like a nonsense syllable. It was like a, an exclamation that was in pop culture, at least in presumably like New York showbiz pop culture for a little while. There's also a, a micro hubba in there. If you are paying <laughs> yes. close attention to the clip. Do we think that the reason they don't flirt with Lena is because she is the oldest guest star they've had, or just they finally realize that they have mined all of the comedy that you can mine from flirting with your guest star, which is not very much comedy anyway, and it's time to figure out new shtick? I mean, it remains to be seen. <laughs> I think it's the former. Yeah, just it's. I think it's a combination of Lena Horne being older, but also Lena Horne being like a like a grand dame, like. It's, it's yeah, her energy and her presence. Yeah, yeah. I think it's that Kermit introduces her and says her her name is synonymous with style, taste, and talent. So, yeah, you don't put the moves on a lady like that. They do seem to be. They're trying more bits in the talk spot, which I appreciate. And like this bit could have worked with any of the guest stars. I think. I think you're right that there's a reason that they used it here. But I'm I'm happy to see the talk spot moving in different directions, um, like the Paul Williams one, for example. So the Swedish chef battles some spaghetti uh, in multiple ways. First, it tries wandering off the plate in one direction, and then it goes for a more direct approach at the jugular. <laughs> and yeah, I was trying to figure out how they did that because there must have been multiple spaghetti puppets. I I still haven't figured it out after multiple watches. There will be gifts in the show notes. You can try to let us know. It really does look like it's walking. I don't know. Yeah, it's neat. It is. It's really cool. And it, when it at one point, I actually thought that the chef was doing it himself which is you know an advantage of having real hands <laughs> but I, <laughs> I could also be wrong when it jumped up to his neck it really surprised me because that yeah. was not like an axis i thought this puppet could move on <laughs> so fuzzy has a comedy spot uh wherein he gets himself into kind of a revolving door of just yelling says you with statler and waldorf and he gets himself out of said door with something that may or may not be a joke May or may not be racist. If you have to stop and wonder whether a thing is racist, it probably is. Well, let, let's uh, get out of this with a better joke. Fozzie does a tribute to mime Marcel Marceau. And now my tribute to Marcel Marceau, an impression of a man balancing himself on one leg. Count them. One. Here we go. Thank you. Now, now a man balancing himself on no legs. Yeah! <laughs> I love the sound of the the crash box there, <laughs> like as if Fozzie is made of pots and pants. Like it doesn't. <laughs> it's just such a like a gag sound effect that makes no sense. But it it's neither an impression nor has anything to do with Marcel Marceau, who was a mime. Also, this is also very of its time because he was very famous at the time. We have firmly established that Fozzie does not know what an impression is. True. Is, nor does he know maybe a running gag. Nor does he know what mime is, apparently. Like it he's just standing on one leg and then he's falling down. I mean, it's funny. I don't get me wrong. It's very funny. But it's also funny because Fozzie does not have legs. Yeah, that's the joke. <laughs> that's why it works. But he's I get, really struggling it's funny to, stand it's up. funny to us. I'm just in the reality of the show, it makes no sense. Obviously, I found it very funny. I also like that this sort of lays the the foundation for what will become, I think, one of the Muppet Show's most 
brilliant achievements, which is when Kermit does a dazzling tap dance number without having feet, uh, when he does happy feet later on in the show. Yes. Though we do, he does have, doesn't he have he feet does in not that, in that No, not in that number. Oh, wow. Right? That's why it's so great. It's like, in our memory of that number, we can picture Kermit's footwork, but if you actually go back and watch it, it's all waste up. That's it's amazing. just a lot of shots of Kermit not having feet. <laughs> uh, last week, the DVD gave us a quote from Jerry Jewell about Fozzie. It gives us one again this week. Jerry Jewell, uh, at this point, is a writer on the show, and in season two and beyond, he'll become the head writer. Um, he wrote the Muppet movie too, right? Yep. He said, we thought it would be funny to watch Fozzie just be a bad comedian. It wasn't. It was sad. We had to find a way to make his bad jokes and insecurities funny. You had to love the guy for his courage. I'm, I'm not quite sure why they put that quote on this bit, because it's still we're still kind of in sad territory. It is courageous to stand on no feet. It's true. <laughs> and just as a as a bit as a sight gag, the you know, the falling is very, very funny. It is. So in the blackout sketch, Lena Horn is Locked out of her dressing room, Hilda is no help because she left the iron on and her head is in such a pickle. Uh, so Lena turns to Animal for help. Animal! Animal, I, I was wondering, would you help me find my key? Uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> my mom has perfect pitch, so I... <laughs> I ask her, uh, I, I, I specifically played the sketch for her and like, she doesn't quite hit a pure tone. So we, we rounded down to a D. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. I actually went and played it. It's like, I think she's screaming an E flat, but then she kind of screams up to an F it's yeah, it's not a B flat, but you know, it's a really funny joke. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give it to them. Yeah. Don't ask the, the drummer for the pitch. Like, <laughs> <laughs> You'll be disappointed every time. This was the outfit that I had marked as Lena Horne's worst outfit of the episode. Uh, it's just like a gray smock. It, it's very dull. It's just like a shirt that goes all the way down. I hated it. Although it is very reminiscent of what she wore on her first Sesame Street appearance. I kind of like it. It is the most clothing-like of the clothing-like items. That Lena <laughs> no, the train station outfit is like normal people clothes. Agreed. And her talk spot, her talk spot ensemble is just like a black dress with a cardigan over it, like a very seventies. You know, you know what it is. It feels like <laughs> I bet at least half of her outfits in this episode probably came out of her own closet. Oh, for sure, um, I will. I will make a screenshot of this for the show notes. It, the color is weird, but it's very like I like the off-center buttons and the. This is we are not a fashion podcast. What are we doing? But it's I don't just know. So drab. We just have feelings. the colors really drab. You're right. Mm-hmm. Although it does make animal pop against it. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And the, the backdrop for the blackout spot is, yeah, you're right. We're not a fashion podcast. I don't know what. <laughs> <laughs> We're an everything podcast. We're whatever we want to talk about as it relates to the Muppet show. We have a lot of opinions. All right. We seem to have reached the end of our sanity and also <laughs> the end of what we have to talk about. Does anyone have final thoughts on the episode? Yeah, now that's my kind of act. <laughs> I will give my my favorite Muppet of the Week award to the Miss Horn, who is the the wrong Miss Horn. It's a trumpet with a wig, and it's really cute. It is really cute. Great week for the Cleveland Muppets. Mm. Team Cleveland. I do feel like there's the sort of Damocles hanging over them, and I know that the further we get into this... <laughs> show the less we're going to see them in one day 
they'll just be a memory and I'll be sad. Yeah, I, we- I know. I think I maybe said this last week, but I've, I've, I've become really attached in the process of making this podcast to particularly George, Hilda, and Mildred. And knowing that they are leaving us <laughs> makes me really sad. Well, what a note to end on. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody play a B-flat. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for our discussion of the Peter Ustinov episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. You can also email us at podcast at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Brian Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. La da da di da da la da da di da da la da 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 da